Hello and welcome. Greetings from UNICEF Office of Research in Achenti and welcome to all our participants from around the world. I'm your host, Sarah Crow, and this is the ninth Leading Minds Online, what the experts say on coronavirus and children. Today, we are looking at a topic that is rife with contradictions and controversy, the infodemic and fake news. Even the term is hotly contested as you'll hear later. Before there was a pandemic, there was an infodemic. And for children and young people, the virus of misinformation and disinformation can do great harm. With millions more on smartphones and online each month, how do children detect the difference between technologies where they're abused and misused? And how do they decipher the difference between facts, information, misinformation, disinformation, and plain lies? In the fog of this digital battle, truth is indeed proving to be the biggest casualty. We have an excellent group of panelists here to help us wade through the, the fog of these questions and more. And here they are, starting in Manila, Philippines, Maria Ressa, campaigning journalist and Time magazine person of the And from UNESCO headquarters in Paris, Guy Berger, Director of Freedom of Expression. Hello, Guy. And from UNICEF, Angus Thompson, who's the senior social scientist and expert on immunization demand. Hello, Angus. Hi, Sarah. Be speaking to all of you in a minute, and my colleague David Anthony will be checking out the audience questions and panelists to a conclusion. David, this is something particularly close to our hearts as former journalists. It feels like another century because it was when we had to check, check, and recheck and get our sources, evidence, and facts before sending even a word to the sub editors. But this, this changes everything, doesn't it? Yes, you're absolutely right, Sarah. In our time, we had libraries and strict uh, fact-checking processes. You couldn't publish anything without going through multiple editors, and sources needed to be watertight and often double and triple checked. So I'm absolutely fascinated by the discussion and looking forward to seeing and hearing from our panel of experts. And then I'll return in around 40 minutes with some questions from the audiences and then a poll. So have a good show. I'm back to you, Sarah. Thanks, David. Don't go away. <laughs> As we said, COVID is not just the biggest public health emergency in a century. It is also a global communication crisis. The internet has offered golden opportunities of knowledge and information for children and families, but also a bewildering proliferation now of memes, deep fakes, pushed by unseen and unknown bots and trolls. It's almost like we're living in Alice in Wonderland somehow creating fear and loathing around every aspects of our lives from democracy to dating to diseases. With the hope of, a new, of new COVID vaccines on the market soon, as we heard this week, defining facts from fiction has never been more important. So let me put the first question to all our panelists now to answer in 30, 40 seconds, please. And I know you can, because you're all experts at communications. Question is, why is the viral infodemic potentially as dangerous as the coronavirus itself for children and young people. We're going to start with Claire Wardle, then we'll go to Guy Berger in Paris, then and Angus Thompson, who happens to also be in, in France, and then to Maria Ressa in Manila. So over to you first, Claire, for a quick response on that one. Uh, well, firstly, thank you for having me. And your point about this being unprecedented is why we need to be worried. So children are suddenly seeing that their lives are turned upside down, their parents' lives are turned upside down. And so everybody wants explanations, they want to feel better. And so obviously, people are going online, they're searching. And unfortunately, they're right now, there's a lot of false information, and information leads to people's behaviours. And so whether or not they wear a mask, whether or not they think about being inside or outside, all of those things are critical. And that's why we have to take the infodemic as serious as we are the pandemic. Right, right. Guy. Just have to unmute there. Yes. Well, in case uh, you didn't notice, I'm not exactly a young person, but uh, I recently read the latest Ilana Ferranti novel, which is called The Lying Life of Adults. 
And in case you don't know, it's a story about a teenage girl growing up in Naples between the age of 12 and 16. And she discovers that adults are not always truthful. It's worth reading. And what it reminded me of is that when you're young, you face this dilemma, what to do when you come to learn about lies, how you can recognize them, especially online, and how you as a young person can shape your own identity rather than be manipulated by disinformation, even without knowing it. So it's about your rights as a young person, your right to freedom of expression, and when you're being manipulated by people who abuse freedom of expression. Angus Thompson, your thoughts on the viral infodemic and its impact on children. Sarah, yes. In a word for me, hamsterkauf, my favorite word of the year. It's a German word that means hoarding behavior. Um, to Claire's point, uh, what's important is to understand whether the misinformation, disinformation actually affects people's behaviours. Uh, people who believe coronavirus is a bioweapon are more likely to engage in hamster calf. We know that belief in misinformation correlates with vaccine hesitancy, decreased intentions to vaccinate um, and decreased trust in scientists. 5G towers have been burned in the UK to prevent them spreading coronavirus. They don't. So uh, COVID-19 disinformation has real world consequences. And I think uh, the trust point shows that they're potentially long lasting, but we must not underestimate the danger of the virus as well. Right, trust is a big commodity. Maria. I mean, Sarah, you know, before COVID-19, we already knew that in this new information ecosystem, lies laced with anger and hate spread further and faster than facts. This has put journalists at a disadvantage, right? So you are more prone to get lies than you are to get facts. But the reality also is during the time of COVID-19, whether the lies are coming bottom up through social media or top down from a leader of a nation, uh, lies can kill. And, you know, when, when a president says uh, bleach or, you know, to, to take some of these things, um, it's shocking where the world is and and can make your head spin if you're young and trying to figure out your identity at this time. Right, absolutely. It's all un uncharted, isn't it? Uh, let's have a quick look at some of the data around this first. We're soon in a world where there'd be more mobile phones than, than human beings. And of course, with, with children, we have new data. You saw some of the data there from UNICEF Innocenti, new data from the UK shows that just 2% of children actually know how to detect lies from truth. Uh, turning to Claire now, Executive Director of First Draft News. Claire, these terms are so often used interchangeably, misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, infodemia, uh, and you've been campaigning particularly passionately to kind of depopularize the term fake news, which is used on both sides of the political divide globally and very loosely. Which for you are the worst offenders, particularly when it comes to the damage done to children and young people? So the difference between disinformation and misinformation is critical. Disinformation is false and misleading information created and shared by people who know that it's false and want to cause harm. Misinformation is also false information, but when people share it, they don't know it's false and they don't mean any harm. So that's when my mum shares something on Facebook being like, oh my goodness, have you seen? But she, she doesn't mean any harm. The people who create disinformation, it's actually a very small number. The bigger problem we have is when we 
share that information, not realizing that it's harmful. And so we shouldn't be blaming people for sharing that. We should be saying, well, why are people susceptible? Well, they're susceptible because they are having their emotions manipulated, they're scared, they're frightened, and they're sharing because they think they're being helpful. And the, the, your point about fake news, it's true. I refuse to use the term, mostly because most of this content isn't actually fake. We need people to understand that. Most of this content is old content that's recirculating, or it's something that has a kernel of truth. It's actually much more effective to use genuine information and to weaponize it than it is to create completely fake content. And most of this stuff isn't news, doesn't even look like news. It's memes, it's visuals, it's videos. So the reason I don't use the term is because it's not actually a good description of what's going on. And also it has been used to undermine journalism. And right now we need journalism more than ever. So we shouldn't use the labels that are being used as a weapon against journalists. So that's why I don't use it. And I, I think I'm sort of winning that, but it's been a while of me pushing the same same old stuff. <laughs> what term do you prefer, Claire? I think we should use the words that make sense. So are we talking about misinformation? Are we talking about disinformation? Are we talking about a conspiracy, which is a set of ideas that there's a kind of a dark power that's pulling the strings? Are we talking about lies? Are we talking about propaganda? So I think we should just be more specific rather than a term that just kind of lumps everything in and it makes people think this isn't complex. It is. And we need to understand that complexity. Right. And you mentioned you mentioned visuals. And we know words cause wars, right? But a picture, as they say, is, is worth a thousand words. So therefore would be multiplied even more. Why do you focus so much on the power of the visual medium? What, what is it at play there? Well, partly because the way that our brains work means that it, it takes less time to make sense of a visual or what we think makes sense of a visual. And it, we're much more likely to have an emotional response to a visual. So bad actors use visuals knowing full well that they're very effective. And as you said at the beginning, on this, I don't need to scroll through text. A visual is there. I can share it without having to click through to a link. And so those people who are trying to push misinformation use visuals a lot. Those of us who are trying to push quality information, we love words and we need to get better at understanding the power of visuals because actually we don't use them enough and we should be. And young people absolutely understand that we live in a visual culture. We need more young people working at places like UNICEF to help us create engaging visuals. Right, absolutely. And Snapchat is one of the, one of the big favorites, isn't it? TikTok. TikTok and Snapchat. First Draft has been doing a lot of work with on the supply side of things with social media platforms, with the UN, with UNICEF and others, especially now around the new vaccines and behavior change. So how do you navigate this digital this digital battlefield, as we were calling it, and you know, sort of the, this and monitor the extraordinary rate at which it's happening in real time? I mean, it, it must be out of control. <laughs> Yeah, it's been a busy time, I'm not going to lie. Yeah. Uh, but you're, you're right, we, we do think about the supply side, but we increasingly need to think about the demand side. But I would say over the last four or five years, as people have been concerned about this issue, there's been this sense that there was a quick fix. Well, if only Facebook changed its algorithm, if only governments would re regulate, if only we... Well, actually, the truth is, yes, we need to work with platforms and we need to think about that. But we also need to do more to work with communities to say, how do you build resilience? Because this isn't going to go away. There isn't one silver bullet. This is going to take us years to get through and we will get through it. But I think we need to understand we need to think about supply, demand. We need to work with everybody in society. There is not going to be a quick fix to this, um, which means I mean, it's a challenge, but it's an exciting one. So it's not just about the big tech companies, is it then? Uh, so what have you been learning? I mean, you've had this extraordinary experiment now in real time with journalists, with communication experts, uh, and how are you applying this knowledge and resources to what you're learning right now? You spoke about the importance of journalism being you know, far, far more important than ever before. So how are you applying that? So I think the big learning over the last few years is that, again, those of us who work in quality information, those of us who come from a journalism background, tend to think about the world through a broadcast lens. Well, if I have enough followers on my Facebook page, it will be OK. If I can just get people to tune into my radio show, we can push more facts. And what we need to understand is the, the audience, the people are networked. They're talking to one another. They're in family WhatsApp groups. They're connected to people on Snapchat. They're talking to one another sideways. 
And so how do we actually work with communities, work with people in those communities who are trusted to help communities build resilience so that they can be the people who say to one another, hey, you know what, I saw you just share that and I get it. Like I'm, I'm trying to understand this too, but I'm a little bit worried that people are sharing this information to divide us as a community. Like, can we talk about this? Mm-hmm. I think that's what we need to do more of is to stop thinking about this as a top-down approach, more facts, better journalism. Yes, we need all of those things, but we can't do that and ignore what it means to work with communities, to bring them into this process. The public is almost never part of these conversations. It's let, We need to talk to somebody from Facebook. We need to talk to somebody from policy. We need to talk to somebody from UNESCO. Where's my mom in this conversation? You know, that, that's, that's for me is what's so critical to, the, to these types of um, discussions. Well, we don't we don't have your mum on the show, but we do have UNESCO. Right. <laughs> so we can turn to Guy Berger, UNESCO's Director of Freedom of Expression. Uh, Guy, you heard there from Claire about the importance of the public community, but also, of course, about you know laws. In normal times, international standards would favour freedom of expression, but these are not normal times, as we well know. And in a pandemic. For the purposes of public health, governments can take extraordinary measures to control information uh, that cannot be easily reeled in once the genie is out of the bottle, right? So what's the indication so far that anti-fake, anti-fake news laws, I know Claire won't like that term, uh, are being used to stifle uh, real flow of information, or real freedoms? And how do you strike that balance between the human rights perspective on the one hand and censorship in a way that's proportionate and, dis- and transparent. Mm. Well, Claire mentioned her mum. Uh, I think her, it's probably just a symbolic mum. I'm sure her own mum is probably quite well educated by Claire. But uh, <laughs> I mean, I think that what we're concerned with here is also uh, younger people, our um, siblings, if we're young, our uh, nieces, nephews, children, grandchildren, And I think what's key from their point of view is that as you grow up, you learn, or I hope you learn, that you do have a right to freedom of expression. And also, I hope that you could learn the difference between when that right is legitimately being limited versus when it is being arbitrarily violated. And what you're referring to now, uh, Sarah, is when there are arbitrary violations. And much of this law against disinformation is so broad that it does allow for arbitrary violations. Arbitrary means it's disproportionate, it's too vague, it's not uh, specific enough. Now, (laughs) from the point of view of UNESCO, in fact, we've just done a a 300-page study called the Balancing Act. And I'll put a link in the in the chat. And this study spent 300 pages looking exactly at how you balance freedom of expression on the one hand with combating disinformation on the other hand. And guess what the conclusion was? The conclusion was that on the whole, freedom of expression is an essential part of the solution, not the problem. Because the problem really lies with a lot of factors that can be countered by freedom of expression. For example, you need a free flow of information for early warning about crises like COVID. You need free and independent journalism if you're going to monitor the risks that a crisis like this can be exploited for corruption or political gain. So you need this freedom of expression because if you don't have it, then you have a kind of uh, situation where you can have censorship and censorship can even obscure the truth. Censorship is not simply uh, 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 used uh, to try and combat disinformation. Censorship is used to cover up truths. Mm-hmm. So I think they have to keep perspective, adults and children, about how we go about tackling disinformation while preserving freedom of expression. Right. So let's not find ourselves seeing the free flow of information to be more of a problem than a solution to the challenges that we have in the world, including the challenge of growing up today. Right, and part of those challenges of growing up, of course, are enshrined in many ways in one of the most ratified uh, conventions in in human history, the Convention of the Rights of the Child, uh, which upholds those freedoms, of course. But freedom ain't free, as they say, Uh, and young people don't always know that platforms like Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, 
come at a cost and it's a hidden cost which can be you know taking away children's very identities when they're not really forming their own identities and developing how do they develop a wisdom to decode what um what how to you know navigate as you call it the wild west of the internet and know when they're being taken for a ride know when they're paying with the one thing that can that, that they actually call their own their identity their very identity Mm. Well, as you said, the, the, the convention does, in, does indeed uphold that children do have a right, human rights and the right to freedom of expression. What's important in understanding this, I think, is that you have the freedom to seek and receive information, but also the freedom to impart information. And so children need to be supported in both and protected in the exercise of both. Now, too often we forget that protecting children should be founded on protecting their right, their right to freedom of expression. And as I was implying earlier, this right to freedom of expression, which, like privacy, is really fundamental to the development of ourselves as autonomous, ethical, and capable members of society. But, of course, the inherent vulner vulnerability that goes with being a child means that young people deserve some shielding in regard to how they use their right to receive content. And at the same time, they definitely need preparation, not just protection, because no matter the shield, some inappropriate content will still reach young people. This includes lies, but it also includes very subtle and manipulative content, like consumerism, identity, standards of beauty, modes of sexuality, etc. In other words, when we shield young people, we also have to help them build their own shields. And here, teaching critical thinking is key, building emotional literacy is key, and awareness of the political economy of the communications ecology and the internet companies, plus their commercial agenda. So we have to do all this, and I think we have to go further and help young people construct not just their own shields, but their own swords. So that when they enter into imparting, to expressing and sharing content, they should know that some words and some images can be hurtful. Second, they should know how to respond to false messages as well as hateful ones, and when there's a toxic combination of these two. And they should know how they can use their swords to promote their own human rights and the rights of others, how to debunk disinformation, for example, how to argue against bullies, racists, sexists, and other purveyors of hate who use false and misleading content to amplify this kind of content. And in all this, as I've said, they need to know about this communications environment and to be able to use their swords to tell the internet companies when there's content coming through that is uh, violating the right to freedom of expression. Thank you. And the pen, the pen, of course, is a, is a sword unto itself, right? Uh, and as a former professor of journalism, you must be learning a tremendous amount of lessons on how to shape curricula, guidance uh, at a time like this for, for digital natives, for millennials and Generation Z, Z as they say. How, uh, how would you say um, which countries are getting it right or which, what, what, who's doing it right? Who's getting that sort of amplification of the science, the solutions, the solidarity, and the, the literacy training? Who's, who do you think, and why? Well, it's, it's a bigger question in a sense than just an individual country, because it's very important education ministries are picking this up, and it's in the teachers' training colleges, it's in the schools, it's at the universities, but also, what we find in some countries is that the broadcast licensing body is doing this very well. In other cases, the media itself is educating the audience about how to be discriminating when they uh, engage with content. Cities sometimes are being engaged. Youth groups are engaged. And with UNESCO, what we're doing is developing a range of curricula. They already, many of these exist. And you have to cover a lot of different competencies here human rights competency, political economic competency about the communications environment, visual literacy, as, as we were talking about earlier, advertising literacy, 
security awareness, intercultural competencies. Um, the good thing I'd just like to tell you about is that every year there's a week in the year dedicated to what people call media and information literacy. And this took place two weeks ago. It's every year the last week of October. And we had this global media and information literacy week. A wonderful declaration has been developed about this, analyzing where we are today in relation to disinformation and building up this resilience. This declaration is called the Soul Declaration, and I'll paste the link, and it was developed with young people. So we've got a lot of guidelines. Some countries are leading, other countries are, are not yet investing in this, but you know, the cost of not spending money in this area is a lot more expensive than if you, uh, if, <laughs> let, me let me reword that. If you don't spend money, you'll have to pay a lot more because the consequences of disinformation, of manipulation of young people, is these consequences are far worse than if you invest in building up the shield and the sword of young people in the face of this problem. Right. Thank you, Guy. The shield and the sword again. And of course, you know, Maria, as a campaigning journalist yourself, you've seen a lot of the shield and the sword and felt it in many ways been a target of disinformation campaigns, as you've called it, death by a thousand cuts. This new abnormal where fact and fiction are blurred correlates directly with the growing distrust, doesn't it, of between science and journalism. Uh, and and we're, seeing, we're seeing those two things go hand in hand. Why is this trend so dangerous for young people, for digital natives? So I, I love listening to Claire and, and Guy. Uh, but one of the major things we haven't touched on yet is exactly what's different about this time, right? And that is the technology that has truly, I, I, I think if you have kids, uh, please watch The Social Dilemma on Netflix. That's a, that's a great first step, which is exactly what the technology does, right? We put it in, we put content in, uh, journalism, writing is a thinking slow process. But yet the technology is thinking fast. It's designed to appeal to, through neuroscience, to a thinking fast process, instinctive in us, that bypasses the thinking slow part. So here we go. We put in all the data onto a social media platform. Machine learning pulls it all together and creates a model of us, knows us better than we know ourselves. In the movie, The Social Dilemma, it's a model of the young boy. His name is Ben. And that model then uh, is taken by artificial intelligence and the chooses the moment of vulnerability of Ben, of, that, of the model, and sells it to the highest bidder, whether that is a, a, a company advertising that does more than advertising has ever done in the past, or a country, propaganda, disinformation. And when you sell our behavioral data that way, and if we're targeted, uh, whether we take the message or we don't, we put that data back in. So we are part of this perpetual 24-7, as long as we're on our, on our cell phones, uh, machine. It is insidious manipulation. So that, that's the biggest, the biggest problem. We cannot solve trust issues or facts finding facts, putting it back at the center until we fix the business model of the technology that is insidiously manipulating us and has brought us to the brink of, I call it the death of a thousand cuts of democracy, right? Because without facts, you cannot have truth, you can't have trust. I think the last point is, you know, we can take this all the way through to, to identity. If these social media platforms, an engineer would say, optimizes for growth, right? It's optimized to keep you time on site, to keep you on the site. But they do that by appealing to the worst of our human nature, which means, and this is Science Magazine as early as 2018, the lies spread faster and further. They go viral. Um, it is hate speech that moves disinformation and conspiracy theories. This is what spreads faster and further. 
the social media platforms radicalized. I'll, I'll sit back on, uh, and, and throw it back to you, but this is a very, very different time. What is called advertising today is manipulation in a whole different way from television advertising. So you're seeing this as a bit like the tobacco industry once was. Is that your thinking, Maria? I, I'd say far more because, it think, you know, we became a journalist because information is power. Well, this is what these times are telling us. And if we don't have facts, human endeavor at every scale, human, uh, you know, democracy, that exercise of trying to work together to find solutions to climate change, solutions to coronavirus, this is impossible if you don't have facts. And you've said, you've said that journalists or journalism, um, fact finders, filtering lies, really faces an existential threat now uh, because the gatekeeper role, as you mentioned, has been taken over by the big tech companies who've given a megaphone, megaphone in many ways to authoritarians uh, to, uh, in your words, weaponize information. But propaganda has always flourished, even before social media, before technology. So what is the difference now? You mentioned velocity being one. What's being lost and can it be brought back? Spoke about the genie in the bottle. Is it too late? Look, uh, it's never too late, but it is, I guess, propaganda has always been around, but it's never been like this. We have never, social media platforms are behavior modification systems, and we are Pavlov's dogs. Imagine your kids in that environment. That is it. These social media platforms actually, when you look, I started studying them because I was looking at how the radical, the ideology of terrorism spreads. This, these platforms isolate. It's books have been written alone, were alone together. Sherry Turkle wrote this, right? So, so the biggest problem that, that we see right now is that the growth of the platforms uh, actually divide society. So, so for example, in Duterte, whether it's Duterte or Trump, right? In the Philippines, I watched my society get divided over the last four years. President Duterte was elected in 2016. And then I watched this happen. Pro-Duterte people, because of a technical decision to grow the platforms, all social media platforms use this, they recommend friends of friends. So you grow your network and the pro-Duterte people, they will choose more like them, friends of friends, they move further right. The anti-Duterte or anti-Trump people will move further left, right? That is the growth um, algorithm. All of them are based on something like that. So the filter bubbles are normal. What do we do about it? And this is part of what we've tried to do in the last few months. Uh, the Forum on Information and Democracy has pulled together experts all across. And you need to have people from tech, people who are journalists, yes, but we focus a lot on content. And that is only the first step. There's a second layer of data that is far more manipulative. So uh, the Forum on Information and Democracy just released today uh, uh, a very long document, four different papers that look at 12 broad principles that we should have to try to think this is for governments, for tech platforms, for civil society. And, uh, and it comes down with to almost 230, more than 230 tactical moves we can make to try to rein in the technology. Think about it like this. It's almost like the atom bomb went off in our information ecosystem. And we have to do something to prevent that from happening over and over again. That's quite, a, that's quite an image, Maria, the atom bomb going off. I think we need to capture it, like Claire was saying, into an image rather than the 280 word, word document or 280 page documents, I should say. Uh, that's the challenge, isn't it, going forward. But now I'm going to move to, to really down to brass tacks, if you like, um, to Angus Thompson now, just looking particularly at the COVID, the COVID issue and the mistruths, misinformation around that. Just this week, we heard some encouraging news on the new COVID vaccines, but of course, that may not be until 2022 before it's all rolled out. 
But this comes at a time, these new vaccines comes at a time when you already had huge amount of resistance because of the misinformation. And as we've heard from the other, from the other speakers that you know, children and young uh, and families are being deluged by, by this disinformation as well. Uh, so how do you actually counteract all of this misinformation, Angus, and build trust, particularly at this time when people's lives are really at stake? That's a pretty big question, Sarah. <laughs> I think maybe a word on the vaccine. Um, you know, my background is vaccination. I think um, we've seen a remarkable mobilization across the world, uh, 11 vaccines in the, in the last phase trials, the, the trials that test them for efficacy and safety. Um, I think we can be cautiously optimistic about the news from Pfizer and, and seeing that there's a whole new technology for vaccines that's working, that's great. But we still don't know who it's gonna work in, uh, how long the immunity is gonna last. Um, getting, to a, getting to a new vaccine is very hard, right? It's, it's, it's a vaccine is a complex biologic that we develop to stimulate our complex immune systems. It's, it's not easy. But getting from vaccines to vaccination is, is very, very hard. It's, it's equally or, or more difficult, especially with a new vaccine, uh, which will come into doses, which will have an initial target population that is notoriously hard to reach with vaccines, older adults, uh, at-risk people. Um, in a context of heightened uncertainty and anxiety uh, during, the, during this pandemic, uh, where we're seeing politicization of public health um, and erosion of trust, as I've already touched upon in, in science, in scientists, and this storm of disinformation. That's, that's a lot of factors that I noted in, in two minutes um, that are going to challenge our introduction of these new vaccines in terms of uh, people's acceptance. Uh, a very recent study um, has shown that across 28 countries, about three quarters of people say they'll get a vaccine, they intend to get the vaccine, which is not bad considering we don't even know what the vaccine looks like. I'm not sure if I intend to get it yet. I want to know what it looks like, etc. So that's, that's pretty good. But what we have seen is um, that, that that number is, is going down in almost all of the countries, right? So more and more people are saying, I'm not sure if I'm going to get the vaccine. So this is, this is a very real effect. Now, now, the big question is what do we do about it? And um, that's what I'm tasked with at UNICEF. And I think we've heard elements of the solution of the answer already um, from the other panelists. Um, maybe just three key points to, 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 to continue the conversation because I could talk about this for hours. First of all, um, I think Claire's point that everything has to operate at a community level. That means that we need to get down to the community level and understand how the kids and the youth in communities are experiencing misinformation. So we've heard about, and, and what their concerns are, right? So we've heard some data from, from UNICEF. Um, I've, I've, I've had the chance of, well, uh, Terry Semft, who's a, uh, an academic at uh, Macquarie Uni, shared some information, some data ahead of um, a white paper, policy paper she's writing for the WHO. Uh, in Latin America, youth are not really worried about the disease, right? They, 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 they have this kind of health exceptionalism you know, it's not going to touch me. They're worried about money. Uh, they're worried about education. They're worried about conflict at home. You know, 30% of adolescents spoke of loud arguments and shouting at home. Um, they have lower levels of trust than any other demographic in institutions, in news, but also in the platforms. They're more likely to believe conspiracy theories. We need to understand how they are processing this information. We need to remember that they're not just processors of information. They're creators of information, okay? This, this, this generation is, is more likely to be a creator of, of information than anyone else. So we need, to, we need to understand them. We need to kind of walk in their shoes. We need to understand the conversations that are ongoing, the questions and concerns that people have. And this is fundamental. And if there's one thing that I would, one message that I'd leave is that we must, through all of this, see through that fog of, of, of misinformation, that storm, to the perfectly normal questions and concerns that many, many people will have. And we must answer those. And we must answer them in a language uh, that people, uh, that is relevant for people, that is visual, uh, that is accurate, etc. So that's, that's the first thing. I think we've heard about digital and media literacy. Um, we've got some great examples of how this can, this can literally build immunity to misinformation, uh, at, even at a primary school level. Uh, a trial, a trial in a, a randomized trial in, in Uganda showed in over 200 schools that 
a curriculum that worked to increase critical thinking and literacy actually reduced um, uh, susceptibility to misinformation. And then the last thing maybe I'll leave you with, but we can come back to that, is, is this idea that we can now vaccinate people against misinformation. We can inoculate them against misinformation. Over. Inoculate them, but we also need uh, this, not only the shield, but also the sword, as, as we heard earlier from, from UNESCO. But Angus, you've also dealt a lot with the addictive nature of, of humans and, uh, and particularly young people. And you heard earlier Maria calling it, calling us, you know, Pavlov's, Pavlov's dog because of what we have, you know, this addictive thing in our hand all the time and you know children in particular being duped into believing that two and two actually equals five sometimes so how do you how do you counteract that because that's going to prepare the groundwork to any vaccine right the information has to go up first so first i'd echo maria's call watch the social dilemma i hear it from the horse's mouth ex-social media company executives and engineers telling us uh, in contrite and concerned terms, um, well, after they've made their millions <laughs> in, before their contrition about uh, what's been going on. Uh, if we step right back to the, the conception of these platforms, um, uh, they are, um, they worked on basically hyper-engineered hacks of our brain. So they, they had psychologists who understand um, uh, what makes us tick, um, as, as Maria referred to, the fast thinking piece, but, but even beyond that, addiction, okay? So the, these platforms need attention. Att they monetize attention. They monetize social approval that we get when we, when we receive attention. They monetize uh, this thrill of discovering something new and a little bit outrageous, right? And especially when it's unpredictable, when it pops up in our feed, okay? They knew that these are triggers for the reward system in our brain, okay? The reward system in our brain that's mediated by dopamine, okay? Cocaine triggers the same system. Now, anecdote, you know, and evidence are different, but when my teenage daughter's access to the internet is cut automatically because I regulate her daily access, she sometimes often kind of appears before me a little bit bewildered, you know, disoriented, pleading for another half hour, another hour of access, right? These systems are addictive. And, and we know that, and the, the platforms that developed them knew this from the very beginning. And they have been refining the addictive, the addictive um, capacity of these, of these algorithms over decades, using, over, over years and years, using artificial intelligence. It's as if, it's as if um, uh, I was able to breed new... Uh, new strains of tobacco, you know, every, every minute, every second to get them more and more addictive. So I think it's important to bear in mind that um, there is this underlying uh, mechanism that is very, very difficult for any of us, for any of us to resist, but kids as well. Right. Thanks very much, Angus. We've dealt a lot with the problems, looking at the addiction. We haven't gone that much into solutions, really, on what to do about big tech, what to do, who's getting it right. There's some good examples there from Finland. I'm going to pass now uh, to my co-host, David Anthony, who's also been looking at some questions coming in. And, David, you have, uh, you're going to present a poll to our participants uh, so that our panellists can't answer, but our, pan our participants will answer. Thanks, Sarah. What a fantastic and fascinating discussion. Um, the, 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 the comments and questions coming in have been thick and fast, and we're going to be looking at those in a little minute with our panellists and really trying to pin you down, panellists, on solutions. Our audience is really interested in giving examples. You've given Finland, Uganda. We need some more of those on what can be done to this absolute uh, astonishing global uh, uh, problem. But if we could put up our poll, please. And, and we're gonna ask this to the audience right now. So we're gonna ask you this question. If you were the leader of a country where disinformation and fake news were widespread, what would you do to stop it spreading further? Would you A, promote legislation to make tech companies add filters to limit the spread of disinformation and fake news? Or B, would you invest resources into school curriculum development 
on digital media literacy so young people learn to discern fact from fiction? Or C, would you increase disincentives to spreading disinformation, including fines and other punitive action on individuals and organizations? And finally, D, would you lead by example and ensure that all of your discourse was based on factually and scientifically based evidence? Okay, so we're going to give you a little bit of uh, time to, to, to uh, think about that. And we're going to go back to our panelists now and ask you uh, a couple of questions, really, before we wrap up. And the first kind of question, you can take down the poll uh, question, um, is, is very clear. And I'm going to ask this to both you, Claire, and to you, Angus. Um, you've, you've both talked a little bit about the demand side, what people can do. So really, let's focus a little bit on things like schools and communities. Can you give us some examples of where schools, communities, and families, indeed, are doing well in countering this disinformation? Yeah, and then Angus might have a few more concrete examples. I think one thing I'd say is it's great that we're having this discussion and we're really thinking about young people. What I'd love to think about is, is young people as teachers. So this sense of like, I'm really worried about the kids. I am much less worried about the kids than people of a generation who always consumed information that had gone through a gatekeeping process. I joke about my mum, but she comes from a generation where she can't believe that anything on a tool as expensive as this would be false. Young people have grown up with social media filters. On Instagram, they have to explicitly say hashtag no filter to say this hasn't been manipulated. So what I would love to see is not just teaching young people in schools and say we're worried about you, is to give young people the skills to go back to their homes and talk to their aunties and their uncles and their grandmas who are on WhatsApp being like, oh, have you seen these things that I've seen? Like, we have to think about intergenerational education strategies. And ultimately, yes, it's about teaching critical thinking, but it's about teaching emotional skepticism. That UN video at the beginning that uses the emojis, that is it. When people feel, and it doesn't matter if it's me, it doesn't matter how educated you are, it doesn't matter where you sit on the political spectrum, it's a very human response to feel scared, frightened, or smug. If you see information, you're like, yeah, I told you so, I knew I was right. Anything that may, or makes you wanna go and buy something, if, we, if it triggers a response, then our brain shuts down and thinks, well, why do I need to be critical? Because that felt good or that gave me a feeling. And unfortunately, our world, you know, we love emotions, we love feelings. Those of us on the quality information say we love facts, rationality and science. And we have to get better at understanding like the emotions, as, as Angus and Maria emphasize, those engineers in Silicon Valley understand emotions and we need to get better at that as well. Thanks very much, Claire. Same question to you, Angus, please. Yeah, so you asked for concrete examples. And um, I, 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 Claire and I think in similar ways on many things, which is reassuring to me. <laughs> but um, uh, I think we should see uh, young people as actors, as important actors. There's a, there's a great example in Canada, um, the BC Public Health Department and, and collaborators developed Kids Boost Immunity. It's a game that kids play, they answer questions, right? And every... Uh, uh, X number of questions they get right, uh, we get a vaccine dose. UNICEF gets a vaccine dose. Um, kids answer hundreds of questions. They answer hundreds and hundreds of questions. They take it home and they answer questions. They show their parents that they're answering questions. They've shown that kids will then speak to their parents about vaccines after they've played this game. The game's available in English and French. Uh, there's an adult version as well. Um, this, is, this is an interesting step. This is more like health literacy. But I think we can go a step beyond this. Um, uh, we've heard a little bit about it. Well, I, I touched upon inoculation. There's an emerging science now of, of either pre-bunking or debunking. Pre-bunking uh, can generate a generalized immunity to misinformation. As, as I think Claire touched upon, you, it, it touches upon two kind of, for me almost, uh, fundamental human values. Uh, the first is uh, none of us likes to be wrong, right? So you can't just correct people, okay? Because nobody likes to be told they're wrong. But the second thing is nobody likes to be fooled, right? Who likes to feel like someone's pulling the wool over our eyes? So we can, we can raise people's awareness of one, the tactics that are being used to fool them with misinformation and more, more disinformation. And Claire touched upon this. We can also raise their awareness of those, uh, so those deceitful tactics, but also of the, of the, 
the kind of nefarious motives underpinning uh, those bad actors, as, as Claire calls them, right? And by doing that, we can, we can prime people to be resistant against misinformation. Now, there are some great examples. There are games out there that have been proven to do this within five minutes, okay, in, in really, good, really good studies. So these games are available. Go Viral, um, uh, produced by Sander van der Linden's team at Cambridge um, with the UK government that's out there. Uh, focused on COVID-19, a cranky uncle, John Cook has developed that. Um, these games exist, they've been proven to work. Now, here's what we have to do. We don't just haphazardly vaccinate people uh, with a vaccine when we have it, right? We need to take these tools and we need to have immunization programs, you know, at a national level. Governments have to set up, uh, step up. Uh, education departments have to uh, step up. Partners have to step up. We have to be immunizing in mass uh, young people and, and of course everybody else, but we're talking about young people using these tools, these tools that are proven to work. Over. Thanks so much, Angus. Um, I'm gonna to switch to the supply side from Maria and Guy. Um, on the tech, tech companies and the government, Maria, Guy, what must they be do? What good examples do we really have that are practices to follow? And then to you, Guy. Maria, please. Uh, so, not enough. Nothing has been done. Part of the reason we are where we are today is precisely because we have allowed the tech to go rampant. And, you know, uh, unlike Angus, I'm not so sure that people, that we have defenses against something like this. I mean, yes, we can stop and think, but when you're in the middle, when you are emotional, uh, then you can't. Uh, I, I think just, you know, uh, for kids, depression, isolation, radicalization. These are byproducts of the platforms. This is where we get our news today. This is the problem. This is the threat to our democracy. And I haven't even told you how, you know, I could go to jail for a, almost 100 years, I think is what Amal Clooney will say. But, you know, the cost to the truth tellers is huge. Um, and that can go to school as well. This is bully bullying at a huge scale when it's national. But, you know, in school, this is this is still something that, that kids are gonna have to deal with. Ha having said that, Claire is right. The studies have shown that adults, the, the boomers and above are share lies more, seven times more than the kids do. I think last one I'll say on, the, on what everyone has said is how do we find a solution? You, I think you have to stop the tech. Legislation, time, finally, because self-legislation hasn't worked. Um, and then after that, enable the journalists to survive. Because I think the one group that actually has done its job at great cost are the journalists. Independent journalists has to survive this time period so you have facts. And finally, the third is community. We need to come together. It's great you are doing this. Communities, civic engagement has to decide on the values it wants into the next decade, right? Otherwise, we're gonna fall into uh, we would imagine a world without facts. Matrix, that's what we're going to be in. We're going to be living in the matrix. Wonderful. Thanks, Maria. Guy, for the last, what do you think can be done by governments and by tech? Thank you. Indeed, uh, when you say the supply side, uh, this is about imparting information. And we have to increase the supply of information as well as decrease the disinformation. But increasing the supply, that means... Uh, more uh, space for independent journalism, more support for independent journalists like Maria. We need young people doing journalism as well. That's particularly important, how they use their right to impart information. Then I, I would treat uh, the internet companies really as transmissions. So between the supplier side and the receiver side, you've got transmission. Now, this transmission is done by the internet companies because they're not generating the content, but they're distributing it. And as has been said, their business models at the moment are working, one, to allow this, two, to promote it, and three, even to recommend it in, in, in many cases. This is really, really problematic. Now, one of the things that, that uh, I think we can do, we can push for more transparency because people need to see inside the black box uh, in order to hold these companies more accountable for what they are doing and what they are not doing about disinformation content. Because unless we get to that point of really knowing in much more detail about 
how uh, the machine is working internally, we're not really in a position to uh, do anything except deal with the kind of public relations statements that they say, where they say, trust us, we're trying to deal with the problem. We need transparency in addition to trust. And I think this is, the, in fact, transparency is the key to trust. And I think that all stakeholders can demand of the internet companies to be much more forthright and much more open about this problem and how they are trying to deal with it. Thanks very much, Guy. Um, and thanks to all of our panelists. Um, I'm, I'm going to pull up the poll again and look at the results of what we said. So we put out a challenge there. If you were the leader of a company, country where disinformation and fake news were widespread, what would you do to stop it spreading further? And our strongest result has to be in investing resources into school curriculum development on digital media literacy so young people can learn to discern fact from fiction. Fact from fiction. Uh, of which two-thirds of our audience basically saw that as the leading initiative for us, followed by putting the legislation that Maria has actually uh, mentioned on tech companies to, to limit the spread of disinformation. Interesting results, great discussion, um, and thanks very much. And I'm going to hand it back to you, Sarah. Thanks very much, David. I just wanted to ask each one of the panellists before we finally close, what did they think of the poll results? What was their initial reaction to those? Did you expect that, Claire, then Guy, then Maria and Angus, in that order? Doesn't surprise me based on the audience, but the one thing I'd say is that there's no silver bullet. I couldn't have answered that poll because the answer is all four. So we also have to recognise that it's going to take us a long time and we need to be doing all of the different elements. Maria. Uh, whole of society. I, I agree. I agree with with Claire. You know, it's uh, it isn't just one part. Again, I'll go back to post World War II. The entire world came together to try to figure out how to stop humanity from unleashing its worst on ours, and that's the moment we're at. That Hiroshima moment. Guy, your thoughts on the poll? Well. People like to vote for digital media literacy, and my response was, sure, but we need to unpack what that means because it's changing all the time. Uh, today, I think it was underlined, we need to also have emotional literacy as part of that package. We need human rights literacy as part of that package. And there's many more things we don't even know. We have to keep on un unbundling this uh, to include also literacy about what are the so-called free services that are being offered? To what extent are they addictive? How do we engage with them? There's a, there's a whole mass of stuff, including, by the way, digital skills, production skills, in that concept of digital media literacy. And so let's not think we have it and we know what it is and it's going to solve all the problems. We have to keep on working at it. Over to you, Angus. Yeah, and I... I... I have this habit of seeing things through a public health lens, Sarah, but, um, you know, I think it, the answer is what Claire said. It's, it's all of the above. It's a systemic approach, um, a programmatic approach, just as we take to, to manage, uh, you know, infectious diseases. I mean, we've eradicated smallpox. We've brought polio almost to its knees. Um, you know, measles is under control. We did that through programs using uh, the tools at hand, not only vaccines, and um, I think we need to imagine taking uh, the same approach. And, and to Maria's point, uh, these programs don't function only driven by public health professionals. Everybody needs to be involved in them. Everybody needs to contribute. Well, I guess my, my takeaway is one that we should add to another poll is, is it children who are actually the ones who should be imparting the knowledge and, uh, and, and ability to the next generation or several generations, to the uncles and aunts and the grannies and the, and the mothers that we, you all mentioned different forms of that uh, in your families. So thank you very much for an incredibly rich discussion. Uh, this is not the end, it's ongoing and it has to be done every day. We all have our role to play in training ourselves uh, to be better at digital literacy, care before you share. Uh, and talking about care before you share, we have one little outro just to sort of hit that home because Claire's, Claire's point about playing it over and over again, let's play out that final video. There we go.
No scientific evidence. We do hear that a lot these days and we need to take greater note. Well, that's it from the team, uh, Leading Minds team at UNICEF in Ocenti. Stay with us next time. It's going to be three weeks time on the 3rd of December. So mark your, your calendars for that. Same place, same time. Online isn't everything. For Leading Minds Online, when we have a special focus on Africa, the demographic dividend, whether it's paying off and whether it shows unexpected, whether Africa is showing unexpected resilience to COVID. Uh, we'll be partnering with our regional office in Nairobi and Johannesburg. So look forward to seeing you there on the 3rd of December. Bye now. <laughs>